Are you paving the way for the life you want? Facing decisions that may affect you personally and financially? The Decision Dialogues podcast, brought to you by Modera Wealth Management, presents personal stories about navigating through life's pivotal moments. Narratives that we hope will inspire you as you create your own story. You'll learn what influenced their next steps and gain insights that could help you with your own critical choices. Welcome to Decision Dialogues. Thanks for joining us on Decision Dialogues. We're thrilled to have you along. My name is Mark Willoughby, and I'm a Principal Wealth Manager and the Chief Operating Officer of Modera Wealth Management, LLC. Today, my colleague Jennifer Fairty, who is Chief Client Experience Officer at Modera, and I will be chatting with Gary Zimmerman, Managing Partner of Six Trees Capital, LLC, and founder of MaxMyInterest.com. Welcome everyone to the show, and I will hand it over to Jennifer. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Gary, so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Mark. I'm really excited to hear about MaxMyInterest and your business, learn more about your business and how it got started. And maybe that's where we could start off, is just tell us a little bit more about MaxMyInterest and what the inspiration was behind it. Sure. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. So Max My Interest is what we call an intelligent cash management solution. It's designed to help individual investors and their families, uh, as well as their financial advisors, better manage cash. And it's sort of funny to talk about cash because most people don't think very much about the cash that's in their portfolio or even the cash that's sitting outside of their portfolio. But we think of cash as an asset class that in many ways can be a very deliberate allocation, just like stocks and bonds and real estate and alternatives. And so that's what Max does. It helps people earn the highest yield possible on that cash while keeping all of those funds same-day liquid and FDIC insured in their own bank accounts. The business itself is really an accidental business. I was not looking to start a company at all. I spent the first 15 years of my career as an investment banker. And the inspiration for Max came during the financial crisis when the bank where I worked was teetering on the brink of insolvency. And it struck me that all of my cash that was sitting there might not be as safe as I thought it, it was. Mm. And so I was simply looking for a better way to manage cash. And so this was really the outcropping of my own strategy when we realized that um, many more people could benefit from the same approach. Wow. So you were really that classic example of being a customer of yourself first. It sounds like you, you saw a problem and you wanted to solve it for yourself. And then it, it kind of turned into an idea for a business. Is that right? That's exactly right. But then how, take us through a little bit about that decision. So you know it worked because you were doing it yourself, but then what, what comes next? Well, it didn't happen overnight. It's just sort of a, a gradual transition. So the Mac story, I guess, begins back in 2009, right in the middle of the financial crisis, when the bank where I was working was all of a sudden on shaky ground and I was looking for a way to keep cash safe. And so the simplest thing I could think of was to take my cash open up multiple bank accounts at multiple different banks and spread it out across multiple banks so that I kept it below the FDIC insurance limit at each institution. And the advantage of doing it that way is not only did I have increased FDIC insurance coverage, but I also had greater liquidity and optionality. So if any of those banks were to fail, I'd eventually get my money back, but I would still have liquidity at the other banks. And that was really important to me. If we had sort of looked back historically, a lot of brokerage firms 
use what are called broker deposit systems, where they basically tell you, don't worry, your cash is all insured. But what they're doing behind the scenes is selling it to other banks, and they're serving as an intermediary. And the problem with those approaches is that while your cash might be insured, it's not fully liquid. And during the financial crisis, liquidity was just as important as safety. So that was sort of the origin. And I began managing these bank accounts myself manually, and I did it for about three and a half years. You know, watching interest rates, watching the FDIC limits and balances and reallocating cash whenever it made sense from bank to bank. One day I, I was sitting in my apartment going through this laborious process and I thought, gosh, what am I doing? This is such a waste of my time. I, I should have a better thing to do on a, on a Sunday afternoon. And I was about to stop. I, I thought, why am I wasting my time on this? And I looked back and I realized I'd picked up an extra 40K or so of incremental risk-free return. And as someone who spent his whole career in finance, that's sort of what often people in finance refer to as alpha, it's that elusive incremental risk-free return. And I thought, well, gee, I'm probably not the only person with this problem. If I could automate this, not only could I benefit from this approach on an ongoing basis without having to spend any more time on it, but other people could benefit as well. And so I started digging into the market and I did the sort of classic back of the envelope analysis. And what I found really shocked me. What I found was that if you looked just at the top 1% of the US population, collectively they were holding a trillion and a half in cash. And if you looked a little more broadly at the top 4% of the population, which was basically any household with more than a million of assets, they were collectively holding close to $4 trillion in cash. And as I started asking around and just asking people where they were keeping their cash and what it was earning, what I found is that the vast majority of this cash was simultaneously underinsured and under-earning. And sort of quickly figured out that US households were probably under-earning by about $50 billion a year, roughly equivalent to the profitability of the big four banks. And I thought, well, gosh, if there's a way to scale this through technology in a safe and secure and easy manner, then people could recapture what is really rightfully theirs. That's incredible. Interestingly, though, so you really did see the problem and kind of a clear solution. Interestingly, though, that you, you had just come out of the financial crisis, right, as we all did. So, you know, we, we talk with our clients around risk, personal risk, investment risk, all that kind of stuff. We just came out of kind of this, you know, kind of scary time. Was there any moment in there saying, even if you had this very clear solution and problem where it just felt so risky just because of the time period we just left? It did feel risky. I mean, it felt risky from a career perspective. And there's a difference between having an idea and acting on it. Many people have ideas, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should act on it. And so I spent about nine months conducting very detailed due diligence on the sector. I wanted to learn everything I could about the banking sector, about how cash is managed, about the existing intellectual property in the field, because I'm a, actually a very risk averse person. I think a lot of investment bankers are inherently risk averse. That's why they're bankers and not traders. And so I was willing to take some risk, but I wasn't willing to take an unlimited amount of risk. And so could I uh, do enough research to de-risk this to some extent? And I was able to de-risk the business plan, but I was not able to de-risk the technology risk. I had no idea whether this was actually um, executable from a tech perspective. Um, it turns out that it should not have been, but we figured out a way to do it. And so when I left the bank, it was actually my wife, and I have to give her a lot of credit for giving me that extra push to say, you know, go ahead and do this, take this risk. And it did mean sort of a change in our lives. Like you, you went from being a, a salaried employee 
to um, an entrepreneur. And we were fortunate that we had the ability to take that risk. Uh, but it was, a, it was a very calculated risk at the time. Would you say that the calculated risk, Gary, was more to do with the financial risk or, or some other factor? That's a good question, Mark. I think it was both. There's financial risk, there's career risk. You know, the, the, the biggest cost of the business is what I would call opportunity cost. So yes, we personally invested capital in the business. We did not accept a dime of outside capital until we had already built software that was up and running and proven. That was a level of risk that I didn't want to expose anyone else to. So we had to prove that out first. But the biggest risk was opportunity cost. Bankers are fairly highly compensated. And the single biggest expense of the business was basically foregone salary. And there were broader questions as well around career. And this is where my wife was really helpful in putting it into perspective, because what she said is, if you go off and do this and it works, that's great. And if you go off and do this and it doesn't work, it will not have diminished any of your existing work experience. All it will do is add a new set of experiences. And if anything, it'll probably give you greater empathy for your clients and understanding that what it's like to run a company, what it's like to be an entrepreneur, what it's like to have something you've built from the ground up. And I think she was right on all of those fronts. So that's really how I thought about it is what's the downside? And I was comparing you know, the certainty of one outcome against the uncertainty of another outcome, but it didn't feel that there was nearly as much risk as I initially thought there was once I thought about it within that framework. Sounds like you had a lot of good support there too. Um, I think that, that can help a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about how, what other kind of sports you had in building your team and, and how you went about kind of surrounding yourself with other people as the company grew? Well, I was very fortunate. In the early days, I had developed the business plan, but I had no idea whether the technology was workable. And it just so happened that a very close family friend from childhood uh, ran a software consulting business based in Chicago. He was one of the two or three people who I shared this idea with early on. I said to him, look, I've got this idea and I think there's a market for it, but I'm not sure if the technology can be built. And he said, I think the technology can be built, but I'm not sure that there's a market for it. And that created this really wonderful early tension in the business because we were each there to prove each other wrong, right? He was going to work and his team were going to work as hard as they could to prove that they could build this. And I was going to work as hard as I could uh, to prove that someone would actually use it. And so we began working with this firm early on. I hired them initially on a consulting basis. And we spent a bunch of time doing in, in tech world what's called spike work where you're not trying to build the finished product, you're just kind of trying to prove out technological approaches. One of those approaches ended up becoming the subject of our first patent, where we had to develop some unique methods for building the system and, and making it actually workable, because what we were trying to do had never been accomplished before. And uh, the team was really wonderful. And so for the first year or so, we built all of the software in coordination with that team. And then one of the lead engineers on that team came over uh, to run technology for us internally with the support of that firm. But that was sort of how it, how it got started. And for the first year, we were just building. It was just a nonstop mad rush to build as quickly as we could, but build as thoughtfully as we could. And so we did a number of things that early stage companies rarely do. One of the things we did was sort of the opposite of what every entrepreneurial tech book tells you to do. So the common wisdom is just put something out there and throw it out there. It doesn't have to be perfect and just see how the market reacts. 
And our view was, no, we're dealing with people's hard-earned money. And well, our software doesn't actually touch any money, there's a lot of trust that needs to be built in. So what we did is we hired one of the leading software consulting firms, software security consulting firms. They do work for 19 of the 20 largest banks. And before we wrote a single line of code, we sat down with them and we said, look, this is what we'd like to build. We'd like to make this as secure as possible. How can we build security into the code itself? So rather than build something sloppy and then put firewalls around it, we said, let's actually write the code in such a way that it, it's secure. And that involved a big investment of time and money to get it right in the first place, but it's made everything since then so much easier. So our thought was we can only bring something to market if it's actually secure and scalable in the first place. There's a lot of good lessons there, I think, in terms of building a company and really thinking through, you know, making sure the foundation is really strong. You know, you touched upon that, right? Because a lot of the startups have this mentality of build a plane while already flying it, you know, um, which is also really good advice as well. But but I like this approach that you had in terms of let's really think through what we need so we don't have to go and fix it later. Yeah, and, and there were mistakes that we made early on as well. You know, one of the mistakes was our system relied on people linking their existing uh, online savings accounts together. So the idea is that you might have an existing brick and mortar checking account relationship at a bank, and that's probably a very sticky relationship. You'll probably never switch banks in your life. But those brick and mortar banks fundamentally can't afford to pay you a very high yield because they've got to pay for the heavy infrastructure costs associated with their branches. And the online banks have a much lower cost structure, so they're structurally able to pay you a higher yield. And because an FDIC insured bank account is basically a commodity, the whole idea behind Max My Interest was that we would help people marry their existing brick and mortar checking account with a portfolio of higher yielding online savings accounts. The mistake that we made is that we erroneously assumed that high net worth households would already have these online savings accounts. And so all they need to do is take their existing accounts and link them together. And what we found in practice is that almost no one had online savings accounts back in 2014 when, when we launched this. Not only was there a big educational component of helping people understand what's the difference between a brick and mortar bank and an online bank, and the answer is there's really no difference, but also we found that we had to make it easier for them to open those online savings accounts. And we've now been working for the last five years sort of maniacally on how do we make that process as easy as possible. What we came up with, which was the subject of our second patent, is what we call the Max Common Application. And it was modeled after the Common App for Colleges. So if anyone listening has college-age students or um, if you're a graduate who's, who's been to college in the last 20 years, uh, if you go back to the old days, it used to be that you had to request an application from each school you wanted to apply to. You had to fill it out in ink or with a typewriter, mail it in. And if you applied to a dozen schools, you had to fill out 12 separate applications. Nowadays, of course, we're much more enlightened. You can go online to a single website, fill out a single form, click on the names of the schools to which you'd like to apply, and presto. So we decided we would take that same approach for opening bank accounts. And so we built this process now where you can open multiple online savings accounts at multiple banks by filling out a single form in under 60 seconds. Um, and in fact, our, our newest bank integration, we've gotten that down to as little as 16 seconds. So taking away that friction, you know, the, the sort of difference between, oh, this makes sense, I'd like to open an account at this bank versus I'm actually going to open an account at this bank. Taking away that friction was really important, but it's something that we hadn't adequately anticipated in the early days of Max. Can I bring you back 
to your I'm going to take a jump into your mind here, Gary, because you you made the sound the the step of leaving the banking industry sound like it was nothing, but I'm sure it wasn't nothing. You'd been in a corporate career for how long at that point? I think I heard you say 15 years. That's right, 15 years. Can we telescope into that moment where, from the the time you had the idea for the business to the time you decided, okay, I'm going. You know, what were the good decisions you made back then? It sounded like you were lucky enough to have a financial basis to invest in the startup business yourself. You know, you were going to build a business. Talk about about your network. What what role did your network play? Like, what did you do really well and describe the process where you got to the point where you're comfortable, okay, I'm leaving Wall Street now. I'm going to launch my own business. Mark, I think the network was very important. And when you start a company, it's a really interesting journey because in the early stages, you've got to convince a number of other people to come along for the journey with you. And it's not just investors, it's employees, it's partners. And fundamentally, they have to trust in your vision and they have to trust in you. And if you talk to a number of early stage investors, they'll tell you that when they pick early stage companies, rarely are they betting on the business idea because the business idea can change, circumstances can change, What they're betting on is the ability of the original team to adapt to change and to find the best path forward. Because fundamentally, a company is a group of people. It's not an idea. And there are plenty of good ideas, but it's really about how you execute on those ideas. So in order to pull together that group of people to get started on this mission, what really mattered is that they trusted in me and that they trusted my judgment and that I would be diligent and careful and that... You know, I wouldn't make decisions by the seat of my pants, but that things would be carefully analyzed and researched, that we'd collect multiple perspectives and try to make the best decisions we could. And that's where I think both the network and the skills learned as an investment banker were very helpful. So what I lacked, of course, was experience operating a business. I'd never run a business. But what I had and what had been drilled into me by so many mentors along the way was the importance of diligence, of attention to detail, how to learn about an industry, how to build a financial model, how to analyze change in industries. I think a number of those skills uh, proved to be quite important and valuable. And so as I was thinking about this potential business, uh, again, early on, it wasn't even really a potential business, but as I started to think about it more like a business, I spent many, many months, probably about nine months, conducting very careful due diligence my spare time, you know, evenings and weekends in as much as those existed as a banker, studying the market, trying to understand everything I could about banking and payments and funds transfer rules and all of the sort of underlying elements that were important in my mind to de-risking the business. When it came time to actually start the company, that's where you start to draw upon that network. And our early investors, a lot of them were people, perhaps not surprisingly, who I'd met through the course of uh, my career. And so they were um, included the former bank CEOs and chief operating officers and chief technology officers and heads of asset management firms. But they were people who had known me in a professional context. And so I think in some ways that de-risked it for them in the sense that they could anticipate how I would behave, how diligent I would be, that by no means assured success. But I I think it, it gave the confidence that this was, if whether or not the idea was backable, this was a person who was reasonably backable. And that in turn helped us to build build up the company and build up the team. And so now you've been with this business, um, 
you said about six years it's been since 2014 is that correct we started the business in 2013 but the first product went live in 2014. so you've had the experience of running your own business as an entrepreneur as a business owner and you also have the experience of being in you know the corporate world i'm curious do you miss anything about the corporate world and also what's the best thing you would say uh having your own business my biggest fear in leaving my job on wall street was that i would miss it too much i mean i really loved being an investment banker and learned a ton in those 15 years this was an interesting career transition because i wasn't trying to leave i sort of just felt the pull of this other idea and primarily what drove me was a sense of curiosity you know, here's a, at the time, $13 trillion market. Now it's a $16 trillion market that's inherently inefficient. Could we find a way to make it more efficient for the benefit of, of, of individual investors? And it turns out also for the benefit of the banks, although I hadn't realized that at the time. So it was really sort of that curiosity that drove the departure. But my biggest fear was that I would miss the sort of the deals too much. I was a an M&A banker. And so you're often advising companies on buying other companies or merging joint ventures, et cetera. To my surprise, I really don't miss it that much. I had one, one moment a couple of months in where I was in the gym one morning and CNBC was on above the treadmill and they were announcing the deals announced that morning. And I had a brief moment there where I said, gosh, I really miss this. Um, and I, I have maintained an affiliation with an investment bank so I can stay involved in helping with a few things. But this has been such an immersive opportunity that I really haven't had time to miss it. And I think the the thing that, that's really been helpful is I think I now have a much better sense of empathy for the client and understanding what the client is going through. Because as a banker, you might be working on half a dozen different transactions at the same time. And you care very deeply about each one, but a, a year later, the transaction's in the rearview mirror and you're on to the next three things. And what I've come to appreciate, um, and I think this is this is true for a lot of business owners, is you know all of the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into building that business. It really is your baby, and there's a lot of emotion tied up in the moment when someone sells a business, or even if it's if, if they're not the founder, but you know they, they worked at a company ever since they graduated from college or business school, and they've worked their way all the way up, and now they're you know in the top job. I never understood as a banker, certainly as a junior banker, I didn't really appreciate all the emotion that went along with those transactions because often you'd say, look, this merger is good for both companies, the economics work. And it turns out that what drives most M&A deals are actually the social issues. Who's gonna be CEO? Who's gonna be on the board? Which of their uh, colleagues who they've worked with for decades are gonna keep their jobs and which aren't? Who's gonna be in charge of the, the United Way donation budget? And all of these things and the stature in the community become really important. So it's it's given me certainly a new perspective. For some of the folks who are thinking about embarking on the entrepreneurial trail, Gary, when you look back, what, what are the decisions back then that were the most solid decisions you made? And are there any decisions that you could point to that you would have made differently now that you have some hindsight? I think that the choice of business is extremely important. Whatever you do, whatever your entrepreneurial journey is, you're going to invest an incredible amount of time and effort and money and energy and emotion into it. And if you're going to make that sort of commitment, it had better be something worthwhile. 
So occasionally uh, people will come to me and they say, oh, I want to start a business. And I'll say, oh, well, what is it? And they say, I don't know. I, I don't know what the yeah. business is yet. I just want to start a business. And I'm like, gosh, why would you ever do that? I mean, it, it's a terrible <laughs> risk reward trade. Yes. Right? Right. <laughs> the, the odds that it goes well are, are pretty low, right? And so uh, it's a privilege to be able to take that sort of risk where it's not catastrophic. But when you hear people, I'm always so impressed when I hear these stories of people mortgaging their homes and putting on a second mortgage and moving into a trailer and, and, and they do all of these things uh, because they believe so strongly in, in what they're working on. And it's incredibly admirable. And I'm always so, so impressed by it, but it's also terribly reckless, mm -hmm. right? And you only hear the success stories, but for every success story, there are a myriad of stories of, of failure. And this is where I think a, a financial advisor can be really helpful in holding the hand of the client and helping them think through it, it, not in an emotional way, but in a very almost clinical way. Now, a good advisor is also a, a good emotional handholder, but I think that clinician is really important because if the founder or the prospective founder isn't prepared to think rationally at the outset, it's only going to get worse from then on in, right? So you've got to make sure that they're truly mentally prepared and, and are applying a, a good solid framework against the decision. Any big decisions back then that you would have made differently now that you know what you know now? At the outset of Max, I had spent a lot of time studying the industry, but uh, I had one major failing, which is that in all my years as a banker, the one industry that I hadn't covered was financial institutions. <laughs> and in some ways, that's part of what's made this journey so much fun is that I've spent the last seven years or so thinking almost exclusively about this business and about the industry and the structure. But gosh, had I known more about the industry, I probably would have been a faster study and figured out some things much earlier on. So in the early days, as an example, in, in the early days of Max, I thought about this very simplistically, which is we're going to create this software that is going to create greater efficiency in the market for bank deposits. And it's inefficiency in the market for bank deposits that has made both banks as well as the old line brokerage firms, not, not the registered investment advisors who are fiduciaries and, and who sell advice, but rather the brokerage firms who sell product. Earning a spread on that cash, in other words, paying the client a below market rate on that cash has been the bread and butter of banks and brokerage firms for decades. And so my simplistic analysis of this market was that the brick and mortar banks will not be enamored with what we're doing. And the online banks will love what we're doing because we're helping uh, with this transition from reliance on brick and mortar to online. It's frankly the exact same thing that went on in the retail sector. And if you look at the adoption of online banking, it's following the exact same adoption curve as e-commerce. It's just about six years behind. But fundamentally, it's exactly the same business. You're selling a commodity online instead of in a store, and so you can do it at a better price. But I had this very simplistic view that brick and mortar banks wouldn't like this, and the brokerage firms wouldn't like this, and that the, bank, and that the online banks would like it. The reality is that it's much more nuanced because what we learned along the way, we built our software with this assumption that people were never going to switch banks. And that assumption turns out to be very valuable for banks because what Max does is it actually cements and further solidifies the relationship with that existing brick and mortar bank because the client doesn't have to shop elsewhere. 
their better rates on savings. We've integrated it all together. Similarly, in the wealth management space, well, we found that the broker-dealers were initially terrified of this. Registered investment advisors looked at it from a very different lens and they said, well, you know, we don't have custody of cash anyway. We don't make any money on cash. We're just here to provide the best advice we can for our clients. If this can help them earn higher returns on cash, which turns out to be a quarter of their assets, then we can help make the client better off. And so we found a very welcome and warm reception within RIAs or fiduciaries. So we began building solutions for them to help them package this in a way that would work better for their clients. And basically everything we've done over the last five years has been focused on how do we integrate this more deeply into that ecosystem so that customers don't have to take our word for it. They can rely on the advice of their financial advisor. Um, so had I understood the, the banking and wealth management sector better earlier on, I think we probably could have saved a couple of years in terms of, of how we oriented the company. Interesting. But it sounds like it worked out in the end, right? And, and the good thing is it's really about pivoting. And once you have those learnings, being able to pivot that business, you know, as quickly as possible and, and grow from it, really. Exactly. And it, it wasn't it wasn't a massive pivot like Twitter. Right? Twitter was a massive pivot where they completely changed their business. This was uh, more of an evolution. The core value proposition, the core of what we do and how we do it hasn't really changed significantly. But how we think about it, how we've oriented it, the user experience has improved dramatically. And in some ways, it's good that we had the time because it took a while for the technology to catch up to our vision. You know, much in the same way that 20 years ago, you could have imagined that e-commerce was going to grow. It wasn't until Amazon invented the one-click easy buy button that you were able to overcome customers' aversion to using their credit card online, right? That the scary moment in the e-commerce journey was the moment at which you had to enter your credit card online. And what Bezos was smart enough to figure out, among other things, is that if I could, if you could securely store that information once, now you could take away that emotional friction from the buying decision. And by the way, once I've already stored my credit card info, at Amazon, then why would I go to another site that's less convenient? I have to type it in again, right? Amazon could deliver a more seamless client experience. So I think there's a lot to be learned from that sector. And we think those exact same forces are, are now driving change in the banking sector. And we think that they are inevitable. So you know, much in the way that some brick and mortar stores were initially resistant to e-commerce and they said, oh, this is a fad and it will go away. The retail industry is littered with previously large companies, giants of retail that are simply out of business now because they refuse to acknowledge the changes that were happening in the industry and the changes in consumer preferences. So I think you really can't be an ostrich as a company. It's very easy to rest on your laurels, but really successful companies are good at adapting to change. My favorite example of this is actually a company in upstate New York called Corning. And many people think of Corning as a glassware company. And they still do make glassware. But in the 90s, they discovered that their expertise in manufacturing glass could actually make them a leading provider of fiber optic cable um, as bandwidth needs were increasing rapidly. And Corning turned itself into a massive fiber optics company. Then all of a sudden, there was a glut of capacity in fiber optics. And all those networks have been built out. And Corning reinvented itself yet again. And now they make Gorilla Glass, which sits atop you know, millions and millions of iPhones. So I think, you know, that's sort of a great example. And you compare them to another storied upstate New York company, Kodak, which 
basically refused to acknowledge that digital photography was going to be a thing, you, you can track the fate of those two companies. So I think, you know, as we think about the large banks, and we spend a lot of time thinking about the banking sector, we think the same dynamic will play out. And the banks that continue to rely on the expectation that customers will just be asleep at the switch and lazy and not really pay any attention to their bank statements. We think that in the short term, that's a winning strategy, but in the long term, that's a losing strategy. That's great. All right. So, Gary, um, just one final question. What's the last non-financial decision you've made today? Uh, well, that was probably at lunchtime. So um, uh, <laughs> my favorite bakery in New York City is the Levant Bakery. They make these oh. incredible cookies that are sort of yeah. crunchy on the outside, and they're almost raw on the inside. And they're absolutely delicious. And we've been a little bit homesick during COVID. So my wife actually made a batch of these. And the tough decision today was at lunch, do I eat one of them or two of them? Oh, <laughs> and what was, the, what was the answer to that? Well, I, I'm big on delayed gratification. So I ate one of them, but I'm reserving the option to eat the other one later. <laughs> okay, very Excellent good. Well, enjoy choice. the cookie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And thanks very much to Jennifer Fairty and Gary Zimmerman for letting us listen in on your conversation. We appreciate your time and perspectives. And thank you for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on Decision Dialogues for more stories from successful business owners. So long for now. Thank you for listening to Decision Dialogues. We hope you found today's stories helpful for your own decision making. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, you can subscribe on your preferred podcasting app or visit our website, where you'll also find show notes and important disclosures, www.moderowealth.com forward slash decision dialogues. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.